Hey, welcome to Benbury Prairie Podcast. Benbury Prairie is a place of peace, fatal history, and Christian charity here in the heart of Ulster. We offer this podcast as an extension of our mission. Uh, please see our website, which is linked in the description below, and you can like, share, and subscribe in order to support our ministry. If you wish to donate to help to keep the prairie alive and a hub for the community, then you can do so via our website, or you can do that in person. So just uh, today, then, I'm joined by the terrific TV presenter, Joe Mahan. Supported by a wonderful team, Joe is the star of Mahan's Way on UTV, and he's a host of foreign favourites such as Let's Spot Ulster. It's, um, he's instantly recognisable for his gentle commentary, full of wonder at Ulster's unceasing surprises, whether that's the raw beauty of abandoned islands, a piece of captivating local history, or the majesty of lush landscape. His kind of contagious enthusiasm and his warm conversational style create a rapport with devoted viewers who will be delighted to watch the second season of Mahan's Way. The season includes our own Benbur Prairie and it's available on the ITV Hub under local UTV programmes. So then, just to begin, Joe, can you tell us a little bit about Mahan's Way and what you hope that readers will, or viewers, pardon me, will take away from it? Well, I suppose, well, first of all, thank you for having me, Marcus. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, it really is a privilege to be asked to do this. Um, there's only one thing I like better than listening to other people and I was talking about myself. You know? <laughs> uh, but um, well, Man's Way, I suppose, is the title of a program that has been going for an awful long, lot longer than the title itself, if you know what I mean. Because I started making programs of this nature uh, a long time ago. Uh, I suspect when you were in short trousers, even if you were around at all. In fact, <laughs> it, uh, I mean, it was certainly, certainly. Um, uh, I should go back to the beginning and really talk about the beginning of my. Um, career as a presenter because before that I had been a producer of TV programs and I was uh, uh, I produced a series that people still talk about whenever they, they see me or, or, or mention Man's Way and they mention McGilloway's Way. McGilloway's Way was presented by Ollie McGilloway who was um, it, well, he was quite unique I don't know if you remember him personally you wouldn't have seen any of his programs I don't know but um, he was, um, well, he was many things. He was actually a nurse, believe it or not. He was a, an, an academic. He was a, headed up a school of nursing at the university. He'd been a nurse himself before that. And he um, was also a keen fisherman, an angler. He was chairman of the Fawn Anglers Association. He was a keen uh, biologist, naturalist. And there was very little about the natural world and really about the countryside around where we, where we filmed. Uh, that he did not know. He knew he knew absolutely everything. He was one of these polymath type people. He wasn't a natural TV presenter in the sense that that you know he can often be gruff and, uh, and plain speaking. You know, put it that way, you know. But that's what people liked about him. That's what people saw as a kindred spirit. Anyway, I ended up for it's a long story. I was his producer, uh, one of his producers, but I ended up producing uh, most of his series. And he did it for about six years, and in that six years, we made we made uh, I don't know how many programs, but probably six. Well, so about thirty programs, less than forty. Uh, and Ollie uh, sadly died uh, early age of fifty-eight, was it fifty-eight or fifty-six? But he was in his late late fifties, and he suddenly died of a, of a heart attack, and obviously that was a shock um and a big trauma obviously for his family but also for the rest of us who were close to him as well he was a good, good friend of mine besides being a, a work colleague so to speak and um and we were halfway through or maybe three quarters of the way through a, a series of programs um when ollie suddenly left us and um, we had to cobble together a few programs from a lot of older stuff and outtakes and things like that but but you know we, we managed to finish the series with the permission and with the, uh, the backing of his family and also with the permission from UTV. This is the old UTV back in the day. And um, UTV and the people who worked in it were also very fond of the programme and very fond of, of, uh, of, of Ollie. And the, they came to us at the time I, I worked in a place called Northland Films. And they came to us and said, look, we like the way that you do this kind of program. We like the feel of it and we like the, the kind of uh, the approach you have to the environment, to the wildlife, to the countryside, to people. And we want to keep it going. How can you do that? And um, without Ollie, 
but we're lucky to try it. Uh, so we, we went away to try it and we, we actually produced a pilot program with another presenter, a young man called Donald Whiteside, who was worked for the Forest Service at the time. He was a ranger. And um, we did, he was a lovely fella. He was a very good natural presenter, absolutely uh, knew his subject back to front, you know, similar to Ali in that respect, like he knew everything about the forest and the wildlife and the, and the, and the natural outdoors, the environment, etc. And he had a very pleasant and very humorous and, and, uh, and very engaging way of talking, you know, just as we do now, talking to the camera. And I was uh, <clears throat> quite convinced that he would make a very good substitute for, for Ali. So we did a pilot program which is what you do whenever you're trying to get a new series off the ground. You make an, an example, you make a, a sample, so to speak. Or, but we put a lot of time into it and, and uh, um, we thought it was good, sent it up to UTV. And they eventually, you know, they have to like it in order to commission it because, you know, we're an independent company. We don't go and make programs and, you know, and then try and sell them afterwards. So you have to just be commissioned. So they came back to us and they said, uh, pardon me, that's, uh, we really like him, we like the program, but um, we're not going to commission it because we don't see it being a program about people. And essentially what we want is a program about people and about communities. And whilst Donald is very, very good, that's not really within his scope because he's, he's, he's out in the wilds and he's more or less on his own for a good bit of the time. So um, back to the drawing board. We went, I was disappointed for Donald and for myself because I really liked, I would have liked the idea of doing that program. But anyway, somebody eventually said, look, why don't you try it yourself, get in front of the camera because you, you, you know the subject matter, you're, you know, you're, you have the interest in it and uh, you have the experience, why not, why not try it yourself? Now I had been a radio presenter, I'd done that for years, but uh, I didn't really, you know, uh, readily fancy the challenge of standing in front of the camera and, and, and uh, trying. Well, there was a whole lot of different kind of sensitivities about it. Number one is, in spite of the fact that I'm a presenter and a broadcaster, we've been doing that for decades and decades and decades, there's still an element of, uh, shyness is the wrong word, but reluctance to put yourself out there. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a very natural thing to be standing up and addressing, you know, 100,000 people every time you open your mouth. And mm -hmm. you become aware of that, or conscious of that. But nonetheless, we needed the work. We needed the program. Uh, there were other people dependent on it, including you know, our camera crew and all the other people who worked in the company as well. So we gave it a go, and we did the first pilot, um, very nervous presenter, and we did it, sent it up to UTV, and they said, yes, that's the idea. We like that. We're going to commission six of those. So we were all delighted. Then we had to face the chance of actually making them. Um, so what were they about? They were about nearly the same kinds of things that Ollie talked about, except I did not have nearly the same kind of uh, knowledge, certainly, possibly not the same interest in things like fishing and so on that he did. I was much more of a, a dabbler uh, in, in those aspects of life and, and recreation and so on. Um, but I did have an interest that, that Ollie made of less interest in, which was kind of local history. And that was that was that had been always there, and it had always been something I would have liked to have turned my attention to. Now I don't want to give the impression that, that programs like this get made with very firm intentions in mind. You know, a lot of them are experimental. The way that you go about making programs is very often uh, <clears throat> it's very trial and error. I think is the best way to describe it. You know, um, you see what things work and what things work less well. What I always wanted to be comfortable in my programs. And what I meant by that was I told people for right from the start, and it seems such an obvious thing to say, but nonetheless, you have to say it. I said, I don't, I don't like artificiality. I don't like any sense of falseness or pretending to be something that I'm not. I don't want to speak differently. I don't want to um, behave differently than I normally behave. I'm not going to be a presenter who does whatever the program requires. I said, if the program requires me, then it'll have me, but not, not me acting up as somebody else. That sounds like a very obvious thing at this distance to say, but way back 30 years ago, when we were starting to make programs like this, 
those were big considerations. Because back in those days, everybody had to speak very properly, like Michael Bagley, and that's why Ollie was, was the exception. So I didn't want to imitate Ollie either. That was the other aspect of it. You know, I didn't want to say, right, you know, that was Ollie, now this is me, and I'm going to do something the same thing. So that's why it wasn't called Man's Way back then. We had to think of a title. <laughs> and uh, <coughs> Alan Bramner, um, Michael Beatty, Andy Crockett, these were the guys who were running UTV at the time. And they said, well, we like your program, we like your your style, and we like the, the, the content so far as we can see it so far. Uh, so what do you want to call it? And, uh, and believe it or not, the title Man's Way was suggested by somebody, and I said, no, 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 that's, that's far too imitative of Ollie, and I don't want to be seen as trying to replace him. You know, I want to do something, but it's going to be different. It's going to be, you know, a different program. It's not just that I'm going to be seen as, as a, a replacement figure or anything like that. So we came up with, uh, uh, I said, we haven't, we haven't thought of a title yet, Alan, to be honest. And so he said, well, think of a title and come back to me because you can't put it out without a title. So I drove back from Belfast to Derry, where I live, and I remember halfway across the Glenshane Pass, you know, this big lonely mountain stretch of road. And I had in the front seat of my car a number of books. I always had books that Ollie had kept giving me, you know, read about this. They were mostly about the natural world, about wildlife and so on. And funny enough, I had been thinking just idly, you know, um, or deep philosophical thoughts. <laughs> I was thinking, um, you know, you've heard of a lesser spotted woodpecker. You've heard of a lesser spotted dogfish. You know, and these 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 names always intrigue me. And I always used to wonder, does that mean that the the, the lesser spotted woodpecker is a smaller woodpecker, uh, or is that a smaller dogfish, or are the spots smaller, or do they have few of them? You know, is that why they're called lesser spotted? So I was musing away on, the, on this silly notion, and a thought suddenly struck me. I wonder, I said, I wonder, I wonder. And so I went back to the house, days before mobile phones, as you can imagine, and I, I picked up the phone, and uh, I, I rang Alan Bremer, and I said to him, what do you think of the title, Lesser Spotted Ulster? So there was silence at the other end of the phone for a considerable number of seconds. And he said, he said, I have been commissioning programs here for about the past 10 years, you know. And he said, that's possibly the worst title for a program I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I said, right, okay, okay. It was just a wee schoolboy joke. I says, you know, forget about it, you know. So we went back to the wrong board again for the title. And within a two days or something like that, he rang me up again and he said, you know, we've been tossing about that 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 suggestion of yours are in the office here, and then make on the rest of you know, you know, and it's kind of it's kind of intriguing title, lesser spotted hoster. We don't really know what it means, and but he said uh, it, it might catch on. It might be something that people um, would would wonder about and be mystified by, or think it's ridiculous or something. But it's going they're going to notice it. So maybe we should go for it. just try it and see. So with some reluctance, anyway, we launched Lesser Spotted Ulster. <clears throat> and that would have been in 1995, which is a year after Ollie died. And um, it's been going, it went from 1995 right up, I think, uh, we used that title up until 2017. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of programs. It started off as Lesser Spotted Ulster. And then we, it became Lesser Spotted Journeys because we were sent all over Ireland by when UTV Ireland opened up for a while. And, um, well, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of these programs made sense. And then, um, well, a couple of different things happened. We, we, we moved off and did other series as well, like Ulster Giants and, and uh, uh, you know, City of Song. So we did, we did, we did, you because know, there's a company that, I should have said this at the outset, you know, I'm working nearly with the same people I started out working with 30 years ago, which is an amazing kind of, I'm quite proud of that achievement, you know, that we haven't, we haven't fallen out. I have the same two producers uh, for a long, 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 long time. Uh, I had three producers at one stage, uh, actually all together, believe it or not. 
Um, now, one of them is my son, Patrick, but he's been making programs with me since he was about six years old. He's now nearly 40. So he's, he was in all sorts of early Channel 4 kind of series. But the, the, the two people most consistently with me are the camera crew, um, Finney Cunningham, my cameraman, and Billy Gallagher, uh, the sound man. And together, you know, we form, there's always a group of five or six of us. And it's very, very much, it always has been a kind of a teamwork approach. It's about, it's about you suggested that yourself in your introduction, Marcus, you know, that it's a, there's a team of people. And I'm very conscious that I'm, okay, I'm, with, I'm the person out front. Um, they're happy for me to do that, although some of them could do some of the things that I do a lot better than I do them. But um, it's, it's somebody has to take the rap, put it that way. Um, so I, I have been doing that, the front man, uh, for all of those years. And it's only, as I say, recently whenever we started doing these other programs and then we came back to do, we said, well, maybe we should try and do more or less spotted Ulster. In the meantime, things changed to UTV. UTV is no longer the old UTV that I refer to. It's now been bought over by ITV, which is the big the national network broadcaster. Um, and we had to kind of have to start over again with them. You know, they, 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 they were... They weren't happy when they bought on, even though they kept the brand UTV, they kind of changed it physically, had its appearance and all the rest of it. And they weren't, they weren't entirely happy about just coming in and putting out the same old programs as they saw it that, that, uh, that UTV used to do. They wanted a fresh look, you know, and they didn't want old um, sort of um, kind of pensioners like me hanging about the place and cluttering up corridors and making old programs. And, until they realized after, after a while, of being here and seeing the, the kind of the programs that we made and also seeing the audience figures that we got because the only reason we kept going for all of those years is that year after year after year it was and i'm not saying this boastfully but i'm saying it in a very practical and thank god way uh, it was it remained enduringly popular with audiences you know we the audience grew up along with this kind of thing but then younger generations started enjoying it as well so it was nearly always head or it was nearly always top of the audience ratings uh, or thereabouts. You know, it used to sort of sometimes fight with EastEnders on the other side, you know, who's got the biggest audience and so on. So when, you would give, when you're getting audiences that are equivalent to what the soap programs were doing, then you're doing, you're doing pretty well. So all sentiment aside, you know, the only reason they kept us going is because we were delivering the goods. And uh, when you work for UTV, it is a commercial television company so they they really have to maximize their audience because the only way that they get any income themselves is from selling and advertising and you know you have to sell advertising to as, as many people as possible so that kind of dictated to some extent the nature of the program that we did so it has to be if you like i don't like the phrase but a crowd pleasing program mm. it had to have not only good content and substance, it had to be entertaining. It had to engage people in a way that uh, it wasn't a duty watch. You know the way you get some serious documentary programs on TV and you say to yourself, oh, I better watch this because I should, you know, because it's, <laughs> gonna, it's good for me or something like that, or I'll have to know this. Um, I wanted to make programs of substance, always have done. And I think that we found a formula where we can do that and yet still keep the same kind of audience and, and you know involved and engaged and so on. And I think that I think the TV watching has changed to I'm sorry, maybe going off, off message here slightly, but I think TV audiences have grown and developed over the years. Now there's so much media about nowadays, as you know yourself, including this one. You know, there's so many different ways in which information and, and, and so on is imparted to people. Um, you know, when we when we set out at the very beginning, we were living and still living in three, four channel land. You know, that was it. There was, there was nothing on those four channels that you didn't want to watch, and that was it. You had to go out and play football or something. Um, so nowadays, as we know, there's hundreds of options, if not thousands, millions of options, you know, and most people watch their, their, their iPads and all their phones and all sorts of other ways and different channels and so on. So you really have to, there, there is still here in, in this part of the world, a pretty strong TV, ordinary TV, terrestrial channel TV audience, you know, that, that's the ones we still have to 
plays and hold on to and so on. Uh, but back in the day, they were they were kind of you know there they were, they weren't too many choices. So we've had to develop over over the over the period as well. We have to adjust to the digital age ourselves and say, if somebody were to say to me, you're you're making the same kind of program, which hasn't changed many in decades and decades, and I would say, yes, to, and to to all appearances that's <coughs> the case. But nonetheless, we have had to adapt and have have adjusted. And I would say one of the subtle ways in which we've done that is we're conscious that people don't want to waste their time in the sense that that um, if you want light entertainment, there's loads and loads and loads of choices on TV. But if you want something slightly more with slightly more substance to it, then you can watch a program like ours because we try and entertain, uh, we try to package it as lighthearted, as, as optimistic, as you know, uplifting. We want people to be have a have a good experience from watching this the places that we go to and the people that we feature we want to give them a positive uh, kind of promotion without being too in your face um it also has to adopt a style that is not really aggressive television it's there if you want it it's that kind of program it's not slap bang wallop all lights and crashing symbols and you better watch this or you know it's not it's not shouting in your face it's simply saying it's an invitation, a quiet invitation. If you feel like doing something peaceful, gentle, tranquil, uh, yet mentally stimulating and maybe emotionally and socially engaging, then this is the kind of program that, that you want. So you can be more conscious of all of those things. You know, conscious of your what your competitors or your rivals on other channels and on other forums and other platforms are doing. And um, so I think that the way we've changed is we've added really hard substance into the program you know a lot more concentration perhaps hopefully not that noticeable but a lot of concentration on 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 history and on the accuracy of facts and information and telling people things that we hope they wouldn't already be too familiar with so in a sense it's still lesser spotted you know in the sense that it's still lesser known facts about things or or slightly out of the way places that would like to be better known and uh i don't know we have this somebody also once said to me um sometimes uh you know they would say oh, you've been doing this for years and years and years and years and you know lesser spotted us it's not that big a place surely you've come to the end of the material surely you've scraped the bottom of the barrels you know <laughs> surely and, that's, I mean, I can understand why people would think that, you know, because of the, the, the you know, first of all, I have a number of answers to that question. Is, 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 first of all, I'd say, you know, if you think this is a small place, then what do you have to do? Stop your car or get off your bike or whatever and try and walk to wherever you're going, okay? Try and just, just take real time and walk or run or whatever through the countryside and try and get from place to place. And you'll find that this place is as big as the universe. You know, when you're not traveling through it at speed, uh, when you're traveling through it at speed, you're in a car, it is not visiting places. It is not being in places, it is passing through places. And given the fact that most people love to drive at speed, it's passing through them very quickly. And given the fact that people drive in motorways, then they see nothing but miles and miles and miles of tarmac stretching in front and behind them. And the side is usually hedgerows, and we can see very little past that. So the point I would be making is that it's much, much bigger place than you actually have uh, in mind. Because what do you have in mind? You've probably seen a map of the place. Quite sure you see it every day when you watch the news. And it is tiny on a map. It is tiny on a screen of a TV with clouds swirling above it. Uh, but that's a false impression. That's a false way of looking at the world. Uh, maps are very, very useful things, and I, I, I have a lot of interesting things to say and I've learned from maps and so on. But maps give us the impression of a world that is containable, that is that's easily packaged, that has got you know very definite ages to it, and has got you know it's got a certain size and dimension. And relative to other places, it is tiny. But I often wonder what life would have been like had you lived here hundreds of years ago before there were maps certainly before there was mass communication. You know, the people um, who lived on the earth <coughs> would have had no concept of where the beginning and the end of the land was, except if they walk there and find out that's where it is there. 
And they wouldn't have been walking around with the shape of Ireland or Northern Ireland in their head because they wouldn't have seen it. Do you know what I mean? Even the most educated of people in those days, hundreds of years ago, you know, are unlikely to have seen anything other than a blob of a map. And, and those maps weren't pretending to be representational. They were just you know, an idea, as it were. So my point is that people's uh, notions of size and dimensions was based on experience, was based on how many days it takes you to walk from here to, to there and so on. Remember a story of a woman who lived in, um, in a place called Leanan Bay in Flamani, not far away in any shown from here. Uh, over Mamore Gap, which is a huge, big, big gap, a beautiful place. But um, way back in the uh, late 1800s or early 1900s, this woman who was a, who was a farmer's wife uh, would collect the eggs for, for several days and from a number of other people. And she would tie them up in an apron and she would walk uh, from Clonmany to Derry to the market to sell the eggs, barefooted. And uh, quite often that would take her overnight walk and she would sleep in the hedgerow and then get up and walk on, and, and come back in the same, in the same way with whatever patterns of money. These are talking about back in the days of extreme poverty and back in the days of deprivation. But she didn't think that. She was doing very well selling her eggs. But she thought nothing of, of that journey. She tried to tell her, look, you know, it's a very small place you live in. You know, mm -hmm. she was, you know, walking, you know, the 28 miles up mountains and down, down shocks and God knows what mm -hmm. way she had to get there. Tell her it's a small place. Point I'm making rather elaborately and long-windedly is that we have a saying, and we've always say we the team again uh, about um, what we do and uh, our our kind of our approach. And our approach is based on this wee phrase: "Stay small, dig deep." In other words, do not. I remember one time the BBC brought out a program, and it was good, it was good wee program, but it was about. Uh, Sky High, it was called. It was about seeing Northern Ireland in a helicopter. Don't know if you remember that. You know, it was Kristen Blakely, I think. Mm -hmm. Fly around and jump out of a helicopter in some beauty spot or whatever and, and uh, take people who lived there up in the helicopter so that they could see their, their place from, from the sky, which was kind of novel and unique. But you can fly over Northern Ireland and fly over Ireland in a helicopter and said inside, like, minutes. And it's not really the way... Apart from giving you an overhead view of things, it's not really the way to see the companies or really know anything about it. So our approach was the opposite. We were jealous that we had no helicopter. <laughs> and in those days, we had no, no, no drones either. So, I mean, the notion of seeing things move over from the skies wasn't available to us. But nonetheless, we, we were happy to, it forced us in a way, to look for our material in small places. <coughs> literally under our feet. So we started getting involved and I started, you know, a lot of friends who were different kind of specialists in academics. So we archaeology was a very obvious one, history, historians, local, local historians, geologists, um, environmentalists, uh, people who could look at the landscape and give you a very different interpretation from what your eyes are actually seeing. Who knew how things came to this this point and to this past, and who, how the land has developed over not only over hundreds of years but thousands and millions of years? So all of those questions, anywhere anywhere I, I go, uh, all those questions spring to mind. You know, how did how did this place come about? How did how did uh, how did Ben Burb end up looking like this? But its history is well known, you know. And to answer those questions, you have to, but you do have to go back centuries. And if you talk to James Kane, for example, and here's the bad verb, you have to go back millennia. You have to go back thousands of years and you have to go back into the realms of, of mythology and legend and, and, and so on, as well as very well-researched, you know, history and then from the early medieval and medieval times right up to the present day and so on. And it's fascinating to know the answers to all of those things and to, and to look at the the people in there whose lives were, were, were uh, you know, involved in that area and, and somehow made an impression on the rest of the world from, from Ben Burb at, at that particular time. And so your approach is, is this, this stay small and dig deep thing. It doesn't mean that you can get narrower and narrower and narrower into the history of a tiny, tiny, tiny place. 
it means the opposite. It means that if you dig deep and you see where the history spreads its tentacles out, you can see where these people connected into other events, other people, other big movements that were happening in Europe and the world in general, and also in the natural world, you know, because sometimes things happened, um, you know, droughts and famines and all of the things that we, we see experience in, in other parts of the world, particularly today, were also happening back then. Um, so that, you know, over, over a period, you start connecting up all of these tentacles from one place to another, to another, to another. And you eventually you form an impression, you form a picture of what life was like 100 years ago, 50 years ago, or 500 years ago, or 1,000 years ago. And um, the way I relate to the world, and this has always been the case with me personally, and I think that quite a few people are like me, it's not sufficient to, to look at a place and say, oh, this is absolutely beautiful, or this is very interesting because the buildings are architecture is charming or whatever it might be. Um, I look at the world that's in, this is my environment, and I want to I'll give you an example of what I'm trying to say. You know when you go on holiday somewhere, and uh, in my case, this would have been two weeks down the west coast of Ireland or something that I haven't been to before, and um, this would be, um, well, I don't mention any place, but the first two or three days that you're there, you're completely disorientated because you don't know where, you don't know the directions of anything. You don't know where to go to see such and such, and you don't know what there is to see even. And so you feel slightly, uh, this is still be true anywhere I want to hold in the continent. You feel a bit disoriented and you feel a bit almost alienated from the place, even though it's beautiful and you're enjoying it and all of that. Uh, but you're kind of uneasy because it's not home and because you're not familiar with anything. And you stay there for two weeks and you learn things and you talk to people and you see the place and you get to know the way from A to B to C to C, you know, and you get more and more and more familiar with it. And by the time you leave it after the two weeks, you can know it extremely well and feel, and, and the, what I'm getting at is the feeling that you have there, the feeling that you might have had at the start, which is one very slight unease, I can't really relax yet because I don't know where I am. And on the end, you're so comfortable you don't want to leave, you know, if you've had a, had a good time. And it's simply because you've learnt something. You've learnt about the significance of that big rock and that big field, or you know something about, you know, what happened here. Uh, and, and as soon as you know anything about a place, as soon as you've got information about a place, then you feel your, your, your relationship with it changes, you know, you own it a bit more and it owns you a wee bit more. You feel more at home in that place. And I think that is trying to answer your very first question, what's man's way about? It's really about trying to bring that sense of familiarity, you know, quickly up to speed with people. So that when they watch a program about Ben Burb, or as they watch a program about, I think it's in Hall Island on Sunday coming, you know, they'll know something about that that they didn't know before, and they'll feel as if they've been there. And, and their lives, I think, will be richer for that experience, you know, that they will have learned something, their, their minds will be enlarged, you know, it happens to me, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm assuming that it happens to other people, if we've done our job well enough, if we've captured what we think are, you know, what is the essence of this place, what, what, what do you really need to know about this place in order to understand it better or understand why people love it or hate it? so much you know why what is it about this place that it gives it a kind of unique character different from another wee place that's only five miles down the road you know so that's the challenge always and it's not uh, not deliberately looking for for sensation or differences and things like that it's looking for sometimes it's looking for sameness and look, it's looking for a pattern but each place has got its own physical characteristics and the people who have lived there have given it different dimensions, they've built things there and so on. And uh, the, the character of each place is really dependent on a whole, whole lot of factors. And our job is to sort of prize open these wee factors and these wee elements and say, look, here's, here's why this place is, is unique. You know, that seems kind of easy to do in a place like Bedburg. But if you go to, you know, some place that doesn't have all of its advantages, and I'm talking about in terms of landscape and architecture and history and so on, you know, 
But but plant us down in the middle of a field somewhere where it seems fairly featureless, <laughs> and we start digging deep, you know, and we can nearly assure people, yeah, we'll you know we'll come up with, with, with some kind of program. Naturally, you have to have the glamour, which is nowadays provided by beautiful landscape shops and drones and all those kinds of things. So um, I'm hoping that that any sense of wonder that we, we can uh, experience ourselves can be transmitted through these programs. And unless you have that kind of, of ambition or that kind of goal, then you really won't bother trying, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people make these kinds of programs and if they have a very, very specific agenda, you think of things like, I mean, Country File is an excellent program the BBC does and Antiques Roadshow, but, you know, one's about farming and one's about wildlife and one's about antiques, but they have a very definite focus, right? Ours is, ours is uh, not, it's, it's not, I was going to say it's not unfocused, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of, it, it, it admits light into an awful lot more corners, you know, and there's nothing, there's no subject matter in, in, in a different, in these different places that would not be welcomed into our program. Very few, you know, as long as they pass <coughs> the cultural taste bar, if you like, that this is the kind of imprint of that program material that we like to, we like to feature and that we think that people will like and that will also, to go back to what I said at the start, they also find it entertaining. So the man's way came about after uh, to answer that final question. So many years had passed since Ollie McGilloway's, Ollie's McGilloway's way had gone that we didn't, I think, right, okay, relent. It's a simpler way of doing it. It's also, by the time I'd been doing Lesser Spotted Ulster and these other programs for so many years, then I felt if people want to locate our programs, that's because there's so many on offer at the present time. So you're scrolling through the, you know, the wee, the wee um, the timetable in the sky or whatever, and you know, oh, man's way. So at least the kind of, that, that might be your man that did that, you know. So there was a tag that, that said this this way towards lesser spotted Ulster, this way towards the kinds of programs that you're that you do these these guys do, you know. So that answer that first question. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I'm going to pause now and drink a coffee, Marcus. Here, no, fantastic. Thank you for sharing, Joe. I appreciate it. And um, I must say too that from my personal experience, I've been inspired by your program to actually take the next step, as it were. And after learning all those wonderful details, to go to these places and really absorb them. And I hope that people will have the same effect with the Benbrook Party, for example. Or even some field in the, in the middle of nowhere, as it were. Yeah, yeah well, I'm good. Uh, that makes no, people, I mean, people often ask us, you know, where where was that place that you were in last week? And, and you often people will sometimes phone us and say, right, but it's the crowd turned up here last week. Couldn't believe it. You know, it's all very weather dependent as well, isn't it? You know, you get you get good weather, people will come out. I suppose you know. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I wanted to ask you next, if I may, Joe, about um, the most recent series then. What were some of the highlights for you and um, why have some of those instances resonated with you so much, I suppose? Well, I suppose, uh, I mean, this is, I'm ready to talk about Ben Berg. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I, I, people often ask, um, what is your favorite case? What's the best program that, you know, that you've done on work? You know, what, 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 what is, what's the highlight of the whole series? And, all that? and I, it's a wee bit like asking a parent, you know, who's your favorite child? <laughs> You know, uh, and you're reluctant, even if you have a wee sneakies, you know, kind of fondness for one more than another. You, you don't say that in public because, you know, you're supposed to love all of your children. And that's, a, of course, we do. And I I have the same feeling about all the programs that we do. And it's not, <coughs> I mean, there are differences, uh, different ways of looking at each one of them. And it's really down to, Yes, how good the final program was in your own estimation, but also the kind of experience you've had there making that program. You know, I mean, if you, you can, in theory, go to a place and not really meet anybody, you know, other than just people who give you some information, or but not really engage with anybody. You can still come away with a lovely, beautiful-looking program and maybe get your information from other sources and put it out on a, you know, a, um, 
uh, online or something like that. But, you know, it's really about engaging with people, with populations of people who live in the places, you know. And that's that's what, what, what creates the experience of their, their happy experience or maybe less so of being in particular places. So I tend to, if we have, and, and all of the shows recently, all of the shows in back several years now, I can't think of one that we didn't actually enjoy making, you know, that we didn't have, have a good time once we were there. Yeah. People are uh, almost universally hospitable, you know, uh, a lot of people who are going to be on the TV um, have got too much to think about, you know, but they're, they're, they're nervous and they're, and they're, they're, um, they're worried how they're going to come across and the, the, you know, that's on their mind, and the last thing on their mind is I wonder is Joe Biden and his team having a good time, you know, because they're 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 too concerned with their own their own performance, so to speak, you know. But nonetheless, most places are very very hospitable, and people are very warm and welcoming, and are glad to be part of the program, and that's all part of how I feel about the place, how we all feel about the place afterwards, you know, and um, it's especially true, I suppose, when you the people who or sharing their hospitality, maybe perhaps don't have enough amount of hospitality to share with you, you know, who, 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 who are proud of their place, but uh, at the same time, they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're quite happy for you not to be there and not to notice it and so on. Uh, so you work with different people, it depends what, you know, some of them are, I suppose I have to say, going right back to the very beginning, it is much more difficult to get contributors, interviewees to come onto your program. Especially, we, we would go to out of the way country places where, where very often the people involved um, weren't that connected to the, to the sophisticated modern world. You know, elderly people would, uh, particularly. Um, and you had to be very careful not to do one to disrupt their world too often, you know, because I mean, you, they didn't necessarily invite you in. You know, you came along and said, "Would you like to be part of our of our program?" And the way that you did that, and the way that you offered that opportunity, had to be very careful with with it. And as well as that, I'm talking about 30, 25 years ago, and so on, uh, when people weren't as media savvy as they are now. You know, I mean, even elderly people, so called, are very familiar with what goes on in the world, and, and you know, they're familiar with 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 you know, not only TV but lots of other devices as well. So they're all. And most of them have been interviewed at some stage or other in their lives and fox pops in the streets or whatever. And, you know, so it's very rare you meet somebody now who's not already quite a good spokesperson for this. And it wasn't the case 25 years ago or longer. Um, most people fought shy of that, were too too nervous, too shy to be, to be want to be seen. And, and, in, and in terms of accents, this is a funny thing as well. You know, nowadays you can hear any kind of accents on, on the TV. Back in those days, I made a joke earlier on where we were all had to sound like Michael Bagley and sort of terribly polished and polite and so on. There was only one way of talking. And people who live in the countryside, you know, as far as the, as far as the TV world was concerned, these people were slightly odd. You know, they were country people. They, they talked differently and, and uh, you had to shout at them, you know, slowly so they would understand you and so on. And uh, it, it, it really it put people up. And it also held, to some extent, people up to ridicule. You know, people were put on the TV because sneakily you were, you were, you were well, you were patronizing them. You were talking to them and, and, and because they were elderly and not very sophisticated in the ways of media, you kind of had to almost uh, talk to them as if they were children. And um, you... But, but it was worse because you could get them to talk to you and they talked in a funny way or they talked, you know, in a high-pitched way or they talked too fast or they talked too slow or whatever. And they were kind of put on TV. I, it seems to me, and I'm looking back, um, as specimens. We used to call it a zoo piece, you know, that somebody was put on the TV and people had a good laugh. But depending on where they were laughing, the person who was on the TV wasn't laughing or wasn't part of the joke, then they were being laughed at. Mm -hmm. A very good example of that was a, a fellow who died a few years ago called George Cunningham from Mr. Van, and he became known as the fastest talker in the West. 
uh, uh, his own Jerry Anderson show and things like that, you know. And how George came to prominence was in the old black and white TV days, Charles Witherspoon making around the country saying, I don't know if you probably remember Charles Witherspoon, and he wore an iron jumper and carried a big microphone and, uh, and, a, and he came on a bike. And he was going to country areas and he was, he was talking to this man called George Cunningham. He was on the, the steps of Straban Council House or Courthouse one day on a protest. And they started interviewing him about what this protest was about. And George, as I said, was somebody who was quite an elderly man at this stage. had never seen a TV camera probably before. Uh, certainly not one pointing at him. And he wasn't a trained spokesman. He, 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 and he spoke very, very fast in a high-pitched voice because he was very nervous and he kept shouting. And Charles Willisburn did all he could. He calmed down. He said, no, no, stand back. You don't have to shout. Stand back. And, you know, and became this kind of silly, funny confrontation. And um, that was used, that wee piece of film was used and uh, it'll be all right on the night. You know that programme? Mm -hmm. That's what it takes. Supposedly funny how it takes. This is one of the ancient ones, and it did the rounds for a long time. Then it ended up on YouTube, and people thought this was, was, was very funny. And then they started contacting George Cunningham, who he kind of acquired their reputation. Oh, he's, he's, he talks very, very fast. And uh, it would come on shows and be funny and go and say something very fast for us, George, and so on. But all of that was a really thin disguise for really... The man was held up. I mean, you've got to remember this. The man was on a protest holding a placard outside protesting about uh, social deprivation, about housing or something, you know. So he was he was motivated to try and make a serious point. And he ended up entertaining people, right? So that's what I mean about, like, that was that became a zoo piece in the sense that you, you went and you looked at the animals through the cages, through the bars of the cage. And um, I, I felt anyway, even from, I remember seeing this as a teenager and thinking, that's not right. You know, he, he's been laughed at. Uh, I'm not I wouldn't, I'm not being poor-faced about it because I probably laughed as well because it probably was funny. You know, it was a funny thing to watch. The, the, the kind of the, how um, uncomfortable Charles Witherspoon was talking to this man who wasn't playing along with the, the normal TV thing. But the point is that he is uh, an example of somebody who wasn't enjoying the joke. Not at the start, not until afterwards when, when they kind of saved, let them save face by saying, oh, you're a very fast talker, that's why we were interested in it and so on, you know. But the point was they were just laughing at his lack of sophistication. You know, they were like, and I think that set back because of rural uh, working class people being involved in the media and set it back, especially in this part of the world for a long time, because they think, I'm not going on there, they're going to laugh at me. They're yeah. going to laugh at my accent, they're going to laugh at the way I speak. And uh, they're going to laugh at my, my simplicity and this, you know, my lack of sophistication. That world is not for me. But I remember making a very strong and determined kind of decision in my head. I said, well, I'm not going to treat people like that. Uh, I'm not going to bring people onto the TV so that other people can be entertained by them at the expense of that person's dignity, at the expense of, that, of any respect for that person, you know. And that's just something we've always been very careful of over the years. Um, there are people who will perform for you uh, because they're known to be, lo locally they're called a mouth. Mm -hmm. you, them, you know, as somebody who, who uh, likes to show off or, or likes to, you know, put himself, you know, or herself, you know, across as something perhaps that they're, they're not. So we're not interested in performance. But we're not also interested in putting people on who might be regret that they were on the TV. You know, you'd be very careful. There are people, perhaps, as I say, who lack the sophistication to make good judgments, good judgment calls about whether they should be on this program or say the things that they should say and so on. So as producers, I think, and we, we talk about these kind of things, we have a duty of care to the people who are on our programs. And we're constantly, especially nowadays, when you've got all of these, you know, nasty experiences people can have online and you know, trolling and all those kind of abusive uh, um, online things that happen to people. So we have to be very careful. I'm not ever going to put somebody on the TV consciously anyway that is going to regret being on there or, or who will incur the ridicule of other people for what they say or what they do. Um, 
even if that means a kind of censorship, you know, I mean, it's not, a, I don't mean that, I don't want people to say certain things. I just don't want them to expose themselves if they are vulnerable people, mm -hmm. if you see what I mean. And I know I'm straight away off the point, but that is all part of the consideration of, of, of making. I mean, over the years, we've had hundreds, probably thousands of people who went on TV for the first time in our program because they lived in a certain place, because they, they had a certain lifestyle or, or whatever. But you've always had to be careful to treat them with due respect and, and, uh, and making sure that they, they were not held up to any kind of contempt or ridicule by others. So, um, and as well as that, of course, you, 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 you develop a kind of on, an ongoing contract with these people. Um, people often say, well, you're really getting people to talk in those cases. I say, well, it's because, because I talk myself, because I, my mother, I think there's a question somewhere, who, who's one of your greatest influences and so on. And my mother would have been a great influence on me because I used to wonder when I was a small child being dragged around with my mother. I was the oldest of seven. Being dragged around with her, hey, that woman could talk for Ireland. You know, she was, <laughs> it wasn't the gossip. She was, but I mean, but she's a good listener as well. But you know, how did these women, I suppose they all had hard lives. They're glad to get out and do a bit of shopping and meet their friends or something like that. But they would stand talking for hours and hours and hours and Woolworths it seemed to me and I was a small toad and hanging on to my mother's coat like out there when I when I shut up Mrs and move on you know but I've seen her able to go into situations into rooms where other people were you know backward or shy or something like that and, and entertaining and starting to talk to people and getting people you know wanting their trust and so on so I think it's a family trait that I hopefully have, have inherited a wee bit from her that uh, makes it fairly easy to talk to people uh, big, big, big thing that you have to remember as well, of course, and which I'm not, which I'm not uh, displaying very well today, is that you have to listen to people as well. You know, so really, really listen to what people are saying and allow them. They're the ones who are who, who, who are featured in this interview in this program. Not not me. It's not. I get the chance to say what I want to say in the in the narration and the commentary and the voiceover and so on. You know. But in conversation, I generally want the part, the other person to have the lion's share of, of, of speaking because it is their, it's usually their subject they're talking mm -hmm. about. You know. So having said that, I'll stop for a while now and let you ask something else. Because <laughs> I don't know if I'm asked, did I, did I, did I answer your last question there? But, but well, but my favorite places, you're going to ask me about these different places. Um, I suppose, I mean, I, I just say, look at the next one. The next one in this case is, is perfect choice because it's Innistrahol Island uh, and it's on next, no, I beg your pardon, is it? Yes, it is. No, it's not, it's Grey Abbey, Grey Abbey and County Down, then followed by Innistrahol. Um, all of these programmes have their own their own attractiveness. They all, they all have something unique about them. So uh, that's as much as you'll get out of me about what's more. <laughs> no, that, that's grand. Thank you so much, Joe. And um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about was in one of the episodes you spoke with the local storyteller, Liz Weir, who's worked with members of my own family in creating kind of wonderful storytelling events and that was both online and in person. And um, we're fortunate here at the Prairie, we have Martin Shaw, famous mythologist, come in November and Paul Kings North, they're going to do like traditional tales and things like that. But I wanted to ask you, why is that kind of formal storytelling so vital still today, such an important art. And maybe who are some of the great uh, figures that you've gained from? Again, not that you have to just choose one or two specific. But yeah, well, you you mentioned. I mean, what I regard as the as the the real, if you like, modern day Shanahi, uh, who is Liz Weir. Uh, I mean, Liz is terrific, you know. And I, I, she was on our program. Of course, she was. She's. She's a consummate storyteller without trying too hard or not appearing to try too hard, you know, because as I said, I think in the program we did with her, that she, um, she her, her, her natural delivery doesn't have to change too much when she's telling the story. You know, I mean, you've, you've seen her, her style and it's very chatty, matter of fact, conversational kind of tone, you know, but she can turn up the drama as well. Uh, but she doesn't over do over dramatize or anything like that, you know. I just think that that's the engagement with people, 
that she has, you know, that, that if you're, you're watching, even watching her online, you're watching the screen, but she's got that ability to, uh, to project into your living room or wherever you are watching, watching her um, in person. She's got all the things that, 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 that attract people to you. You know, she's got warmth. She has got sympathy. She's got understanding. Um, she's got a sense of humor, which is very, very important. She has great timing. You know, I mean, she knows how to get the best punchline out of a story as well, you know. And also, I think in her case, <laughs> I'm thinking, sorry, I'm reasonably laughing. I'm thinking of a person I was out with last night who shall be nameless, you know. And this is, a, this is an elderly person who's got a wealth of stories. And unfortunately, I've heard them all over many, 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 many years, you know, and um, we'll go on from one story to the next, to the next, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing, and that's where they go on, which can be a bit tedious when you're out with a company and you want somebody else to talk, you know. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, well, well the, the point I was going to make about this person's stories is that there rarely is any point to them, you know. In the way, Liz will tell you a story should have beginning and middle and an end but not necessarily in that order you know <laughs> uh, i mean i i think that stories you know uh, they should have some payoff some punch punch line or a, a conclusion you know and, so, and, and that's that sort of speak but um so liz would be very clever at constructing stories that you know and maybe a number of payoffs or a number of points but a, but a definite point to the story you know either some moral to that story or something learned from that story, or just an, as an example of, of something, you know. Uh, but storytelling is, is, is really what it's all about, because, and it doesn't have to be called storytelling, you know, it's, it's really just about engaging people whilst you impart information to them, you know. Nonetheless, if you have, if you can give people understanding and little nuggets you know, a bit of place and, and tell a story about about one aspect of it, and, and, you, and then the stories all add up at the end to, to become you know a whole or a kind of a concept more or less than anything else. That that would be grand. Nearly all uh, good good uh, interviewees I've talked to, uh, and especially some of the ones that are more recently, you know, who've got a field of expertise like archaeology or history, you know. They're all brilliant storytellers. You know what I mean? They're, they're, there's, I'm just going to mention one off the top of my head because it's quite recent. You know, there's Professor Audrey Horning, who is an American, but she's kind of almost naturalized here. She's an archaeologist and an anthropologist. And we were down in a wee graveyard outside uh, Money Moor recently. And um, the reason she was there, and she had a couple of PhD students, three PhD students over from America with her. And they were looking at, what was probably um, an, early, an early 1600s military fortification inside this graveyard, you know, built at the time of the, you know, the Nine Years' War, Hugh O'Neill, or his, one of his English adversaries would have built this, and she was describing that. And she also described the founding of Money Moor itself, and a man called Russell, who was the, the agent for the one of the, the plantation companies, the great delivery companies in London, and how he piped water into this, you know, 400 years ago into this town. But then he diverted the water into some of the properties that he bought up himself. And he opened alehouses, he opened pubs. <laughs> so he had pubs. So she had gone, this is an historian, and an archaeologist had gone to read all the read all the papers and research the whole, the whole thing. And then brought it back to, to our time, brought it back as a story with real people in it. And, you know, and, and he said this, and, you know, and the people were raging. And so, so even an historian, an academic, a professor, going into history, uh, researching what could be a very dry subject, and then out of that, she creates stories. You can literally write it down as a, as a either a funny story or a sad story or whatever. And, um, and she was brilliant at, at telling that story. You know, and, and this is the key. She enjoyed telling the story. It wasn't a duty. Oh, here we go again. I have to give another lecture about, about this period in history. She just enjoyed and relished telling the story. And I think that's the key. I think Liz, Liz will tell you that, Liz, we will tell you that as well. And anyone who is involved in that kind of communication of, of 
information being sent to you. Uh, if they if they enjoy that the process themselves, if they like, well, I, li I like choosing this word or like choosing that word. I like I like the way I describe this, you know, and that's the mark of good storytellers, uh, a good good and eventually good writers for that matter as well. And that's something that when you're making these kind of programs that I make, that you, you would certainly aspire to, you know, so you don't just, it might sound like it, you just don't say what first thing comes under your head, especially not in the, in the, in the, in the voiceover and the script and so on. You think about what you're going to say and how can I best get this across? How can I, what phrase or word can I use that, that says exactly what I wanted to say to describe this to other people? And that's where, that's where hard work comes into it sometimes because you'd stare at that blank screen or blank page for a long time before inspiration comes to you, you know. But um, there's always something, always something that, that you make an act of faith. Every time you set out to make a program, it's based on an act of faith that you will finish that program. You never start out and say, I could pack this in halfway, halfway through because there's nothing here to talk about. Your job is to fill that space about that place with interesting stuff, with engaging entertainment. And, and that is the challenge. And as long as you've done it often enough, it ceases to be a challenge anymore because it's, it's you have faith that you're going to be able to do it. You know, it's that famous Michelangelo saying, inside this big block of marble, there's a statue waiting to get out. You know, so I look at this blank screen and I say, there's a program here that, that, uh, that I have to sort of pull all the stuff, pull all the fog away, and there the program will be by the time that we, that, we, that we finish it, you know? So I think I've kept you going for <laughs> enough, Marcus, here. No, what, do you, what do you think? No, that's great, Joe. Thank you. And um, I think it's just to close up for the, this afternoon, then uh, where can any viewers or listeners find out more about you and the work that you're doing then, Joe? Well, I mean, watch the programmes is all I can say. Uh, I know that there are... There are uh, there are people on Facebook. Some of our team put stuff out on Facebook, but I, I, I'm not on all that all that social media kind of stuff. But I know that uh, I mean, first of all, I always say to people, if you can watch the programs live, please do so because that's what counts in the commercial world. Failing that, if you can record them, failing that, if you can watch them on the UTV player as well, because they keep them up for a month. Um, and if for old programs, then I think you can contact. Uh, Northern Ireland Screen, who keep an archive of all programs. But we're, we're continuing, this series is going to continue on up until uh, uh, I think the last day is the 6th of November. And we're going to have Malin. Malin is the last program. Sorry, Malin was the last program. But last week, we had to move the program in view of the, uh, the, the, the events that were in it, it was the funeral of, of the Queen. So we were taken off air so that the ITV had a, a different program on. Uh, so that program's now going to be put on at the very end, at the end of the uh, at the end of November, or sorry, at the end of the Malin program on the 6th of November. And then by that stage, we hope we will have started making our new series, which is for next year. So you'll be spotting us along the road somewhere or another. Uh, the Ben Burr program that we're, that we're both talking about earlier on is the second last program, and that's going to be on the 30th, Sunday, the 30th of October. This is where it gets complicated because they change the times of the last three programs. <laughs> the, the, the next few weeks is going to be half past seven, and then from the 23rd of October onwards, I hope people are writing down notes about this, it's <laughs> so on at six o'clock. Right, so six o'clock, which is a strange time for us on a Sunday, and I think that I, I much preferred the middle of the week. But Sunday, you know, it might be a day that people have other things to do on Sundays. You know, a lot of people tell me they're going to, you know, forms of worship on Sunday at that particular time too. But not much we can do to control what ATV decides to put it out. You know, so anyway, that's member program the third of October. Don't do not miss it. And uh, the Malin program the following week, and immediately after the Malin program, we have an hour long man's way that, that, that week because we have a program from Garva, which is, which is uh, you know, and these are all, these are all programs I'm, I'm, I'm delighted with, and I hope all our people will enjoy them as well. Um, keep an eye out for them on, on UTV. I know they're trailed in papers and all that kind of stuff as well, but if anybody's on uh, social media, Twitter, etc. There will be other people, not me, putting information on about them. Thank you so much, Joe.
Well, thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. It was uh, probably probably could have done with asking a few more questions in between. But once I start, you can see I was starved of talking about myself. <laughs> enjoyed it, Danny, very much. Thank you.